If you've not been here for a couple of weeks, or maybe if you're listening online, uh, just starting to listen to the podcast on our uh, Southdale podcast, we're in the middle of this sermon series we're calling At His Feet. And I, I mentioned before, this whole the whole idea behind this sermon series came a, a few months back when I was actually sitting in a worship service. Now, one of the few opportunities I have to actually participate as a listener, as a hearer to God's Word, I got to sit and listen as somebody else preached. And, and that day the preacher was talking and he said something to the effect of this, that, that every person in the Gospels who comes to the feet of Jesus finds acceptance, grace, and healing at his feet. And I heard him say that, and as is common, I, my mind immediately asks the question, well, is that true or not? And over the next couple of weeks, I began reading through the Gospels, looking for all the instances where people find their way to the feet of Jesus Christ. And, and that time, that time I spent reading and praying, God began working in my heart, and that's kind of what this whole sermon series was birthed out of, that, that time pursuing all those stories. And I found, just so you know, I found that with there are a few notable exceptions to that rule, but as a general rule, it really does hold out. People do find acceptance, grace, and healing at the feet of Jesus Christ. And so we've been exploring that in this series. We started, <clears throat> we started uh, the morning of the resurrection with Mary and Mary on their way out to the what they thought was the tomb of Jesus. We know it was the empty tomb on their way out. And we're there with Mary as they saw the risen Christ and they came running to Jesus' feet and fell at his feet. And ever since, we've been exploring this, this idea, this theory, that, that the reason the two Marys responded in the way they did was because they knew they could find what they really needed at the feet of Jesus. From there, we've talked about a paralytic who, who found forgiveness when his friends brought him and placed him at Jesus' feet. Last week, we were in Luke chapter 7, talked about a, a woman who had a bad reputation, a woman who was a sinner in the city, a, a woman who other people, when they looked at her, saw her sin, but, but when she found her way to the feet of Jesus Christ, she found somebody who actually not just saw her sin, somebody that saw her and recognized her faith and spoke a word of forgiveness into her life. Today, we're going to move from the Gospel of Luke to the Gospel of Mark. Not because we couldn't stay in Luke and read about this next encounter. This story from Mark chapter 5 is also recorded in, in Luke chapter 8 and also in Matthew chapter 8. But of all of the Gospels, of all of the accounts of this encounter with Jesus, Mark spends the most time here. Mark, of all the Gospel writers points out the greatest detail. that Matthew and Luke seem to think this is a story worth telling, but, but on Mark, the Spirit seems to be impressing on him that there's something important here. And so it's from Mark, in Mark's Gospel, that I'd like to look at this story. Mark chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, uh, depending on what translation you're reading, the, the subject heading there at the beginning of Mark chapter 5 probably is something like this. Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. Now that miracle, the miracle of Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20, 
is actually a part of a set of three stories. Three stories about four miracles that Jesus performs. And, and Mark tells these stories in fairly rapid succession, one after another. This section of miracles actually starts at the end of the previous chapter in Mark chapter 4. Early in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching. And here we read Mark's account of some of Jesus' most famous teachings. The, the parable of the sower and his seeds is in Mark chapter 4. The, the, nobody lights a lamp and places it under a bowl. That teaching is in Mark chapter 4. The parable of the mustard seed. If you have faith even as small as a mustard seed, that's Mark chapter 4. As Jesus finishes up that teaching in Mark chapter 4, Jesus decides to leave with his disciples and cross over to the other side of the lake. Now we're not told why. Mark doesn't give us any explanation why Jesus wants to leave. Most likely, the crowds were pressing in. Jesus had spent time giving of himself to the crowds in his teaching and his healing ministry. And, and he seemed, I suspect, Jesus probably senses that he needs some time to be alone with his heavenly Father. We know he frequently withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And, and you get the impression here, Mark doesn't spell it out, but you get the impression that Jesus seems to sense he needs to draw back from ministry for a moment that he might spend some time with his heavenly Father. So Jesus says to his disciples, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And he gets into one of their boats and, and a group, Mark says, actually a group of boats begin this journey to the far side. And during that journey, Jesus finds his way to the back of the, the stern, I guess that's what you call it in a boat, the stern of the boat that he's in. And he, he gets a cushion and he lays down to rest and he begins to sleep during that evening journey and many of you already know where that story goes as jesus is sleeping a sudden squall comes up the sh ship is the boat is shaken by the waves it's being swamped the disciples are in a panic they wake up jesus with a cry of accusation don't you care teacher don't you care and jesus proceeds to rebuke first the wind and the waves and then his own disciples tells the wind and the waves to be stilled. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still, and I think that still word is important there, do you still have no faith? Haven't you been with me long enough to know that this is nothing to fear? Do you still have no faith? And Mark says, no, they didn't. In fact, Mark tells us that rebuke, while well, Jesus' rebuke of the wind and the waves calmed the sea, Jesus' rebuke of his disciples only added to their fear. In fact, they feared even more. That display of Jesus' supernatural power made them fear with great fear. And all they can do is ask a pretty essential question. Who is this? Who is this that even the winds... And the waves obey him. And that's the end of Mark chapter 4. That question, who is this, are the last words in that miracle story. And so that question kind of echoes across the landscape of Mark's gospel as we come to Mark chapter 5. 
We can hear, still hear that question in the back of our minds. Who is this? Last we saw him, Jesus was on a boat on his way to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. As Mark chapter 5 opens, he arrives. He gets there. He arrives in the region of the Gerasenes, Mark tells us. Although if you're reading in the NIV at least, there's a footnote down in the bottom that notes that some manuscripts say the Gadarenes. And if you're familiar with Matthew and Luke's telling of this, you'll know they use that word, Gadarenes. And still other manuscripts say Gergesenes. And you begin to wonder what in the world is going on here. Just where is Jesus. Now, it's not that they didn't know where Jesus was. It's not that they're describing him in different places. These really are just different ways of describing the same area. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, where are you from? What do you tell them? I, I live just, well, you all are from around here. I live just outside Middletown. And when I say that, you know exactly what I mean. But most people in the world have no idea what just outside Middletown means. In fact, even if you tell them Middletown, Indiana, that doesn't help much because there are three Middletowns in the state of Indiana. If it was someone from not around here, they where are you from? If they're like from Oklahoma, where are you from? I'd say, you know, I live just, you know, 45 minutes or so outside of Indianapolis. If it was from someone from Indiana, I'd probably say, I live not too far outside of Anderson. Only for people really familiar with the local area would I actually say I live just outside Middletown, down on Raider Road. That's kind of what's going on here. It's kind of what is happening in this passage. <coughs> Garasa was, was the major city in that region, but it was, it was about 30 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. Uh, about as far away as Indianapolis is. And without an interstate and cars to drive it, there's no way the people herding the, the herd of pigs could run back, to, uh, run back to Garasa and then make it back to the site of this miracle with the townspeople. That's Mark's way of saying to people unfamiliar with the area where it is based on the biggest city anywhere close by. Uh, Matthew and Mark talks about Gadara, and that is a bit closer, it's about probably about six miles away from where this miracle actually took place. It too was a city, one of the ten cities, not quite as big or as famous as Garasa, but for someone familiar with the area, it would get you to the right part of the sea. Most likely, Gergasa is a place today we know as Kurasa, a city right on the very shore, a village, not even a city, a village right on the very shore of the Sea of Galilee. Most likely, that's where this miracle takes place. That's why there are three different words used to describe it. But regardless of which landscape or landmark you use to identify the location, Jesus is on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. He's moved into a Gentile part of the countryside. This entire region is known collectively as the Decapolis, the region of the ten cities. And these ten cities used to be under Jewish control, but when Ptolemy came in and, and conquered Palestine on behalf of the Romans, the Romans kind of gave independence to these ten cities and handed them over to the Gentiles. And 
this is now a predominantly Gentile part of the region. For a Jew, the move from Galilee to the Decapolis was clearly a move from the clean to the unclean. Jesus is entering an unclean part of the countryside. It wasn't that there weren't Jews living in those ten major cities. There were little Jewish communities in each of them. But this is a predominantly Gentile part of the world. And that theme of uncleanness isn't just in terms of the region. We're also told that the place where Jesus and the disciples landed was near some tombs. Remember back, we talked about tombs and how in Jesus' day tombs weren't holes dug in the ground, they were caves carved into rocky hillsides. That's what these tombs likely were as well. Outside of Karasa, Gergasa, there was a, a rocky hillside in which tombs have been carved. We found those archaeologically. And Jesus landed there. Now that's significant to, to a Jewish reader at least. Because not only was the Gentile countryside unclean, a, a graveyard, a cemetery in a Gentile countryside was doubly unclean. Jews stayed out as much as possible, stayed out of graveyards. Even to this day, observant Jews will go to great lengths, even while flying on airplanes, to avoid being contaminated by flying over graveyards. So great is the uncleanness of a cemetery. But that's where Jesus is. In a Gentile part of the world, just outside a graveyard. And then from out of the tombs, a man comes to meet him. Meet him. Confront him might be a better word. The word Mark uses can be used for just random encounters, but it's also frequently used to describe hostile encounters. When when Jesus is talking in the Gospel of Luke about counting the cost of discipleship, he says, which of you, if you were a king planning a war, would march off to war without first sitting down and deciding whether or not with your 10,000 soldiers you are able, and he uses the same word here, you are able to meet the army coming against you with 20,000. This man comes running out of the tombs to, to meet Jesus, possibly even to confront him. Jesus is in an unclean territory. He's surrounded by unclean tombs. And here comes this man. And Mark tells us that he is possessed by an unclean spirit. Now we would, and in fact we do, you can see the subject headings in your Bible there, we do call this evil spirit, this unclean spirit, a a demon. That's the word that Matthew uses when he describes this encounter. That's the word that Luke uses when he describes this encounter. But Mark specifically chooses to use the word unclean here. It is an unclean spirit. Do you think he's developing a theme here? Jesus is in unclean territory, outside unclean tombs, encountered by an unclean spirit. See, Jesus is in the process of expanding the circle of grace. And when you are expanding the circle of grace, you should expect yourself in places You should expect to find yourself in places. You should expect to find yourself talking to people 
who fall on the wrong side of the boundaries of religious respectability. Jesus is expanding the circle of grace, and sometimes that means going into unclean territories, to unclean places, talking to unclean people. Jesus is intentionally modeling for his disciples what it looks like to seek and to save the lost. I'd suggest that neither this excursion nor this encounter was an accident. Jesus was very intentionally showing his disciples what it looks like to go and make disciples. So here's Jesus. Unclean territory, unclean tombs, confronted by a man with an unclean spirit. And the man does something surprising. This man, possessed by a demon, sees Jesus. Mark chapter six or 5, verse 6. The man, possessed by the unclean spirit, sees Jesus, runs to him, and falls at Jesus' feet. If you're reading in the King James Version, it says, He ran to Jesus and worshipped Him. The word Mark uses is proskuneo. To worship is probably a good translation. It literally describes falling on your knees and placing your forehead to the ground as a sign of, of respect, bowing prostrate before someone as a sign of reverence and respect. This man, possessed by a demon, prostrated himself in the presence of Jesus. Raises a question for the careful reader. Why would a demon-possessed man do something like that? A believer we'd expect, but a demon-possessed man? Well, we know from Mark's description that this man wasn't in full control of his own faculties. Mark has just finished explaining in the previous verses that in addition to living out among this tomb, these tombs, this man was absolutely uncontrolled, uncontrollable. Eventually, I'll say that. He was uncontrollable. Not that people didn't try. It says people frequently, his friends, his family, tried to, to bind him hand and foot to keep him from running off and doing crazy things. But every time they did, he would break the chains, the chains from his hands and his feet. Day and night, Mark says, he would live out among the tombs and he would howl, howl like a madman. And often in his fits of insanity, he would cut himself with stones. No one, Mark says, neither himself nor anyone else, no one was strong enough to subdue him. So it is possible that the demons controlling this man's body brought him to Jesus and threw him at Jesus' feet. That is possible. Worship does not have to be genuine. You know that, right? Just because you go through the motions doesn't make it worship. In fact, Mark only uses this word for worship twice in his entire gospel. Once, here with this demon-possessed man, the only other time is in Mark chapter 15, when Jesus is in trial before the Roman governor, and the governor hands Jesus over to the soldiers, and the soldiers dress Jesus up in a purple robe, and they press a crown of thorns down around his head, and they begin striking him, and they begin spitting at him, and they bow down and they worship. That's not genuine worship. Maybe this isn't either. It's possible 
This is every bit as mocking as the soldiers at Jesus' crucifixion. But I can't help but wonder if perhaps something else isn't going on here. Mark is clear this man is not in full control of his faculties. He's not in full control of his actions. But possibly he was able to wrest control of his own body back from the demons just long enough to make his way to Jesus' feet. That too has to at least be considered as a possibility here. That this man, imprisoned by these demons, sees Jesus and makes one heroic effort to get to the feet of the one person he believes that can set him free. I really don't know whether it was his own desperation or the impulse of the demons inside him one way or another, however, this man found his way to the feet of Jesus. And we know what that means, don't we? You find what you really need at the feet of Jesus. But this time it doesn't come without a fight. Whether he made it there under his own power or under the control of the demons, we don't know. But once he got there, the demons take control of the conversation. Mark tells us in verse 8, after the fact that Jesus commands the unclean spirit to release this man from their control, but the demons argue. What do you want with me, Jesus, they say? What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Somewhere in the back of our minds, we hear an echo, right? We hear a question still echoing in the background of this story. A group of terrified disciples in a boat looking at Jesus in a whole new way and asking each other and us, who is this? The demons answer their question. He is Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And if that wasn't surprising enough, wait till you hear what the demons say next. What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you. A literal translation here. I adjure you in the name of God, don't torture me. That's the demon speaking here. I adjure you in the name of God. Here we are at an exorcism. Jesus is in the process of driving these demons out and the demons decide they're going to play the part of the exorcist. Normally... The exorcist would be the one to invoke the name of God and to adjure a demon to leave someone. That's the formal language of exorcism. Don't believe me? Look at the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the next time you come across this word, I adjure you, it's on the lips of seven sons of Sceva, some traveling Jewish exorcists that like going around and, and showing off. They tend to try to drive out demons with the words, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. You know how that story goes. If you don't look it up, Acts, I think chapter 15, but I could be wrong on the chapter. It's a language of exorcism. Yet the demons attempt to exorcise Jesus. They invoke God's name in an attempt to control what Jesus does. We'd never do that, would we? But Jesus is undeterred. He demands to know the demon's name. To which the demon replies, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
Now, Legion isn't really a name. It really, outside of this, it never actually used as a name. It's a Roman word. A legion refers to the largest unit in the Roman army, a, a group of about five, roughly 5,000 soldiers. When the demon says, my name is Legion, he's not answering Jesus' question. He's trying to dodge the question. And what's more, he's trying to intimidate Jesus. It's not just me here. There are a lot of us. Are you sure you can handle this? But Jesus is neither distracted nor is he intimidated. And the demons seem to realize they're not going to win this battle. So they beg for a concession. They seem to realize that they're going to be driven out, but if they cannot continue to inhabit this individual, at least maybe they can still inhabit this region. Please, Jesus, they begin to beg him, don't send us from this region. And at this point, Mark adds in another detail he's not shared with us up to this point. Mark tells us that there's a large herd of pigs grazing nearby. Talk about the theme of uncleanness, an unclean territory, unclean tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, and here's a whole herd of unclean animals. The presence of the herd of pigs is a clear indicator that Jesus has moved outside of Jewish society here. And the demons look at that herd of pigs and they begin to beg Jesus, send us into the swine. And Jesus gives them permission. The demons release the man that they have imprisoned up until this point. Mark says they enter into the herd of pigs and the pigs proceed to stampede off a cliff plunging into the Sea of Galilee and drowning in the waves below. Now that's the miracle, but no miracle story is complete without an account of the reactions to it. And this story is no different. The first people to re react in this story are the herdsmen, the people keeping watch over their flock by day. Generally, herdsmen are viewed as shifty and untrustworthy. No one liked and no one trusted herdsmen. One can imagine the, the reaction of the owners of this herd of pig when their hired hands run back into town with some crazy story about a demon-possessed man and the, de and the pig's suicide leap into the sea. It's doubtless that they were doubted that day. Yeah, right, you probably just lost them, or you sold them, you stole them, or, or you killed them by your own negligence. It's not surprising that the people of the village, the owners of the pigs, go out to see what has happened. They don't believe the herdsman's story. But when the people from the village arrive, they find that Jesus hasn't vacated the vicinity they see, it says, they see the demon-possessed man. Interesting descriptor there. We know that he's not demon-possessed anymore, right? We know that he's been set free. But the people see the demon-possessed man. They don't see him, they see his reputation. They see his past. Yet they also see that he's changed. He used to be unclothed and unhinged and uncontroll, uncontrollable. But now he is sitting down calmly. 
and he has been clothed. That's the literal translation there. He has been clothed. Makes me wonder, who clothed him? I don't know, you find what you need at the feet of Jesus. Not just release, but clothing. He has been clothed. And he is in his right mind. And there's no doubt that this is him. This is the one they knew that was possessed by the legion. Yet here he is, sitting sanely at the feet of Jesus. And the people are terrified. That's their reaction. What happened here, they begin to ask. What happened? And this time they listen a little more closely as as the herdsmen tell the story of the driving out of the demon, the pigs running into the sea. And when it gets to the part about the pigs, the people realize that something probably needs to be done. See, the people from the village care more about their own bottom line and their own status quo than they do about about this man who's been miraculously restored. And they start begging Jesus to leave that region. They see him as a threat to their comfort. They see him as a threat to their their wealth. Wouldn't things just be easier if Jesus went back where he came from? You see it there in verse 18? As Jesus was getting into the boat, they begged Jesus to leave. And Jesus did not remain where he was not wanted. Probably a sermon in there somewhere, but that's not today's sermon. They asked Jesus to leave and he goes. So we have the reaction of the herdsmen, the reaction of the townspeople. But then there's that third reaction I want you to see. Notice the reaction of the man who had been demon possessed. And here, at this point in the story, the descriptor changes. Earlier it was present tense. They saw the demon-possessed man. Here it goes to past tense. The people from the village saw the man who was demon-possessed. They saw him possessed, present tense. They could not see his, his freedom. When Jesus sees this man, it's past tense. He sees his reality. And to the man who had been demon-possessed, the man who had been demon-possessed begins to beg Jesus. Let me stay with you, he says. Let me be a disciple. That, that stay with you also should sound familiar to us. If we'd been studying all the Gospel of Mark, we'd remember back in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus is calling his disciples. He's calling the twelve. And this is exactly what he invited the twelve to do. It says, he appointed the twelve that they might stay with him and that he might send them out to preach. Same word. This demon, formerly demon-possessed man now asked Jesus, let me be one of your disciples. Let me stay with you. And Jesus surprisingly says no. See, Jesus knows there's more to being a disciple than just staying with Jesus. Staying is important. Don't get me wrong. It's vitally, Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Staying with Jesus is vitally important, but along with staying, there is also ascending to being a disciple. 
And to this would-be disciple, Jesus sends, Go home to your own people, he says. See, Jesus knew that he was not long for the Decapolis. He was getting into the boat, Mark tells us. He was on his, you you don't want me here, I am on my way back. Jesus does not remain where he is not wanted, but he also does not leave them without a witness. And so before he leaves the Decapolis, he sends this man to go and preach. Talk about a crash course in the ministerial course of studies. They had one afternoon sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus said, now go, tell other people. He didn't have much of a formal education, just a few moments at Jesus' feet. But he did have the one most important thing any witness needs. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. He had an experience of the liberating power of Jesus Christ, and he had his personal testimony, and that was all he needed to tell others about Jesus. So Jesus says, go and tell them. And and the NIV says he went and told. He went and began to tell Mark says he went and he began to keruso. That's the Greek word for preaching, for proclamation. He went and he began to preach throughout the ten towns what Jesus had done for him. So what? And that's the story. What are we supposed to learn from it? You do remember our thesis, right? Our thesis is that we find what we need at the feet of Jesus. Does the story bear that out? What did this man find? He found freedom. A man that was controlled by demons. A man that no one was strong enough to subdue because he had already been subdued by the demons that possessed him, found freedom at the feet of Jesus. But not only did he find freedom, not only did he find freedom, he found restoration. He was sitting there fully clothed and in his right mind. He was restored to sanity. Not only did he find freedom, not only did he find restoration, he found provision. Don't overlook that. That's a very practical part of this story. He found a new set of clothes at the feet of Jesus. Jesus met his need. Most importantly, though, he found purpose. He found a mission. He found something to which he could give his life. What do you need? You need freedom? You can find it at Jesus' feet. Do you need restoration? You can find it at Jesus' feet. Do you need provision? You can find it at Jesus' feet. Do you need purpose? You can find it at the feet of Jesus.